Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Coming up August 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, that's next week, I will be part of TIFOS, the Executive Function Online Summit. TIFOS is put together by recent guest Seth Perler. It's a free online summit designed for compassionate and proactive parents, so it's a perfect fit for the audience of this show. With topics ranging from problem-solving to self-regulation to how ADHD and executive function impact relationships with partners and children, and with experts including Dr. Ross Green, Jessica McCabe, Dr. Sharon Celine, and myself, you know it'll be time well spent should you attend. The link to register for the summit is in the show notes, so go ahead and check it out. And speaking of registering for things, registration for the Fall 2020 ADHD Essentials Online Parent Coaching Groups is now open. In these highly effective groups, you will work with me and your fellow group members via online video chat to talk about all of the parenting challenges brought about by ADHD and learn effective ways to manage them. We'll discuss everything from developing parental leadership and strengthening family connections and communication to overcoming the walls of awful that affect our household, managing anxiety, and practicing familial self-care. And given that the effects of COVID aren't going away anytime soon, we'll also address maintaining friendships and family relationships while self-quarantining and social distancing, navigating an uncertain school year, managing our own and our kids' mental health, and fostering resiliency. But perhaps the most powerful part of these groups are the connections you'll make with other parents facing similar struggles. The groups will run for eight weeks on Mondays and Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, beginning on Monday, September 21st, and ending on Wednesday, November 11th. Go to ADHDessentials.com slash parentgroups or email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com to register for a free information call. That's B-R-E-N-D-A-N at A-D-H-D-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S dot com. Those links will be in the show notes. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired and Hacking Your ADHD. In ADHD Rewired, Eric Tivers shares excellent interviews with ADHD experts and ADHD adults, and he also has a monthly Q&A that both Will and I are a part of. And speaking of Will, Will Curb shares practical, actionable tips on how to manage your ADHD on his show, Hacking Your ADHD. But if interviews are more your speed, Will just interviewed me about my wall of awful model. The link for that episode will also be in the show notes. Finally, a big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. His help with this podcast is invaluable. Go to idealvideostrategies.com to learn more about his work. Welcome to the show. 
Today, we're talking to my friend, Dr. David Nowell. Dr. Nowell is an ADHD expert and a clinical neuropsychologist who works with his clients to identify areas of cognitive strength and weakness and relate those patterns to known profiles of brain behavior relationships. In today's episode, David and I talk about the rejection sensitivity that so often accompanies ADHD. We discuss what rejection sensitivity is, the controversy surrounding it, its relationship with the wall of awful, how social competency factors into rejection sensitivity, things we can learn from the therapeutic models of cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy, and the mom-friend override. All right, let's get rolling. So I'm, I'm Dr. David Nowell. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. My practice is in Northborough, sort of between Worcester and Boston. And my practice entails assessment of conditions that affect concentration, focus, memory, executive function, conditions like uh, multiple sclerosis, dementia, but also differences that we're born with, like autism spectrum, ADHD, for example, learning disorders. And I speak, well, these days I don't speak. I sit here in my basement and do webinars, but typically I speak across Australia and the U.S. to professionals doing continuing education workshops, um, largely around ADHD related conditions. And today we're going to talk about rejection sensitivity and rejection sensitive dysphoria and sort of what that is and how that rolls and why that relates or doesn't relate to ADHD. Can you give us just an overview of what that means? Yeah. So depending upon who your listener is, they either just fell asleep when you said all those words or they got really, really angry because interestingly, you know, we can divide ourselves into camps about anything. And this whole idea of rejection-sensitive dysphoria has actually some strong detractors, you know, people who say it's not a thing. And then there's people who are like, oh my gosh, this thing has a name. I've been living with this all my life and it has a name. Some background here. Rejection sensitivity is noticing when you're being disapproved of. But really when we turn the, use the term rejective sensitivity, we're describing an extreme sensitivity, being more sensitive than other people to rejection, teasing, criticism, or your own perception that you failed or you've fallen short. For example, if a coworker's reaction suggests they're not really certain about a suggestion, you might interpret that as criticism and you might either go into a K-hole of shame or you might have this outburst of self-defense and anger that almost looks like you took a crazy pill because it looks like an excessive reaction. So when we say rejection sensitivity, that's a trait that exists in all of us unless you're a raging sociopath and you don't care. But when we use the term today, we're talking about that excessive over-response that becomes problematic. Some people have called it emotional sunburn. Personally, I know that I have absolutely been affected by this. And one of the things that I've found has helped me, and because I know you like to jump into strategies as quick as possible, so I'm going to show, throw this one out there. The place that rejection sensitivity most obviously for me has affected me, and I shouldn't say most obviously, but one that stands out, I guess, is in the dojo. Because... Oftentimes at the end of a lesson, not so much now that lessons are virtual, but when we used to go to the dojo and be there together, we would all hit the back wall and then each person would come out one at a time and do a form. And the black belts would all be standing at the front of the room watching us do our form. And it's, it's just an assessment. It's just kind of, how are you doing? And for the longest time, I would step up there and my mind would go blank and I would get wrought with anxiety and I would butcher some form that I had to do. Or I would be killing it and I would be like, I got this one. I would be running through the form of my head in advance. Like there was no sort of woo way, mind, no mind thing happening for me. It was all mine. 
And that sensitivity around the black belts disapproving of me and everyone else seeing that I didn't know my form would ruin me. And I would see other people who are the, would step up and be like, I think I'll ruin three kata. And I was like, how can you say that? Like, that's terrible. That's, you can't just what? And then they do three kata well or poorly. But in my head, I was like that, what the heck? And then in the course of me going through my martial arts training, I also started this podcast and this business and lost some jobs and learned how to fail and developed a much more significant growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. Yeah. And now when I do my forms, I'm like, eh, let's see what happens. I don't get nearly as caught up in concern around, am I going to do this well enough to not get rejected by my peers and my senseis? And that growth mindset perspective has helped me tamp down a lot of my sensitivity around rejection, not just in martial arts, but in other areas too. That's something that's popping into my head already as we play with this. But one of the things that I'm wondering about is how do we know if rejection sensitivity is a thing? I mean, I just shared that story. Makes me think maybe it's a thing, but there are people who argue against it. Yes. So what's, why? Why do people want to fight against something that seems like a thing? I think because... Um this term, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, it sounds like perhaps a small country in Europe with its own money. The language is kind of stiff. It's super clinical, and it's usually presented in capital letters, you know, like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I think some people feel that we just keep making up categories for can't, or we just keep making up categories for won't. And so I think the resistance, and uh, I think we can appreciate that resistance. You know, we, we shouldn't just rush and introduce a new diagnostic concept before there's good data and clinical discussion. But I honestly think this conversation right here is part of that clinical conversation. You know, before it gets to the level of these people who put things in the ICD or the DSM, I think it starts with conversations back and forth. I think we're part of it. Thinking about is rejection sensitivity a thing, I want to circle back to your experience in the dojo. The best I can relate to that is as a kid playing piano and then doing piano recitals, I would sometimes walk onto the stage and sit down at the piano and I would forget how fingers work. I would just literally like, eh. that's performance anxiety. Are you making a distinction between performance anxiety and what happened to you at the dojo? I am. Yeah. Because it's not just performance, right? Like there is some level of performance, but there's also mixed into that is, are my really more the senseis than my peers? Okay. But that's there too. Mm -hmm. Like, am I going to be disapproved of? Am I going to demonstrate that I am never going to be worthy of being in the black belt club. Uh, that kind of stuff was deep in there. And I, I ranked up to first degree brown belt a week ago. So I'm getting closer to that black belt club. Congrats. Thank you. And I took like five years off to start a business and get a master's degree. So I'm, I really should have it by now. But, you know, sometimes things get slowed down. But that, that's definitely there. That concern around like, am I just going to get rejected forever? And, okay. and another area where it would often hit me was at a job, right? Like I would be teaching, I'd screw something up and I would feel like I was going to immediately get fired. And even the smallest little mistakes, if anybody found out that I had like graded the essays a week later than I should have getting them back to my students or something, I always felt like anything like that, if my principal found out about it, then I'm going to get let go because that's not what a teacher does and I'm not good enough to have this job. So it's a combination of that imposter syndrome stuff but always aimed at, am I going to lose my job? Is this the end of my career? And ironically, that led to the end of my career in some ways. 
and it took me running my own business to learn that like, no, you screw stuff up and it's not the end of the world and you move on and, and developing that growth mindset that has helped me get past my rejection sensitivity. I think you may have hit upon something that helps us distinguish folks who are really sensitive to rejection. So I'd like you listeners to imagine that an important person comes to you, your sensei, your landlord, your supervisor, whatever that means, important person to you. And they approach you at nine in the morning and they say, um, hey, uh, I need to talk to you later. What goes through your head? Are you thinking, oh, I'm probably going to get a prize. Or maybe she made brownies again and they're special brownies. So she wants to give them to me at my car rather than here in the workplace. Or do you think, oh my God, like I'm going to be arrested or I'm going to be fired. And I think, Brendan, just because we're Zooming and I can see your smile, I know where your head might might have gone in the past when somebody said, hey, Brendan, can we talk later? Let me catastrophize this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, so there's a two outcomes. You know, if, if, you, um, if you're really sensitive to rejection, one outcome is that you become a people pleaser. You just make sure that your sensei loves you. You make sure that the randos love you. You make sure that all your listeners love you. You make sure that <laughs> it's exhausting and you become a chameleon for what you think other people want. The other possibility is that you just pull back like a turtle in a shell the pain of failure is so bad that you refuse to try. You don't try to advance at work. You, you don't ask people out for dates because the idea of being rejected would be too painful. Another way to think about that is that one idea is that the emotional response of rejection goes inward. It becomes depression. You know, I've, I've texted you. You haven't texted me back. The pain of that is almost unbearable. The other possibility is that the emotional response is directed outward, and it can look like rage, now, I think what we're describing here is why rejection sensitivity is a component of bipolar disorder. It's also a component of certain personality disorders, especially personality disorders that may have their roots in trauma, like borderline personality, where you have folks who have trouble tolerating the moment, trouble regulating the moment, or in the case of bipolar disorder, difficulty with just rapid changes in emotional. Dr. William Dodson, who talks a lot about rejection sensitivity dysphoria as a thing would suggest that the emotional response to failure is catastrophic for people with this condition. Real or perceived criticism or real or perceived withdrawal of love, respect are just as devastating as the real thing, even if the thing hasn't happened yet. And that loops us back to ADHD, right? Because you didn't mention that one in the list. I did not. I'm kind of well known for a repeated failure model that I've developed called the wall of awful, which is the wall of awful. I was hoping we were going to talk about that. Yeah, right? Because that's a trauma model, really. It's just trauma by a million little cuts mm -hmm. as opposed to one significant event or one or two maybe major life events. Yes. And so that leads me to think that this rejection sensitivity, whether we want to throw dysphoria on the end of it or not, based on all kinds of debates in mental health and psychological circles, it's got to play a role in ADHD, right? Because people with ADHD just fail more than people who don't have ADHD. And that leads to this repeated trauma of a million little cuts that I have dubbed the wall of awful. Brenda, you, you, those million little cuts, how long do you have to live with ADHD? How old do you have to be to have experienced a million little cuts? Not very. Um, my guess, at least in terms of when I think of it in terms of kids, I'm thinking fourth grade okay. is when we start to see some consequences of I'm not good enough. I can't do it right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I didn't do my homework or don't know my math facts or I do know my math facts, but I have no interest in showing my work and my teacher's on my case about showing my work, but I keep getting the answers right. How come I have to show my work? I must just be bad at math 
except that no evidence says that you're bad at math. You're just bad at the drudgery of showing your work. Yes. So as early as fourth grade, and then that just builds from there and it expands outward from school to social situations, to romantic relationships, to work stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm going with like fourth grade. So that's 10, nine or 10. Yeah, that makes perfect developmental sense. You know, as, as soon as you have the cognitive capacity to notice that there are successes and failures, and you have the capacity to relate those to yourself and your peers, and then you have theory of mind, which is what does Cindy think when she looks at me? Uh, I think that's probably when it kicks in. So imagine then someone who doesn't get diagnosed with ADHD until they're 42, and they've explained these failures using other language, folksy language like space cadet, squirrel, lazy, that kind of stuff. And then suddenly I have a neurological explanation for these things, but I've got this um, million little cuts or wall of awful that I now have to grieve, manage. So let's walk through the questions we've raised. Is, is rejection sensitivity a thing? So uh, I think we can answer that. It's a quick yes. It's baked into us. Until very recently, we lived as hunter-gatherers. We lived in tribes of 30 and 40 people. And imagine how advantageous it would be if as a species, we were wired to notice that other people are approving of us and how we're wired to experience it as painful when we're being rejected because we're a species that, that's sort of wired to work together and collaborate and create pyramids and software. So rejection sensitivity is baked in. It's not a bad thing. We're wired to blush and experience shame uh, because we're creatures that collaborate. We do know from research that there are brain-based correlates of rejection sensitivity. You can actually um, sort of see it happening on brain scans. 2007 study found that folks who have low rejection sensitivity demonstrate different prefrontal activity. It's almost like they're doing something. So when you present folks who have low rejection sensitivity with a scenario that involves shame, blame, they seem to be doing something to quickly make themselves feel better. So it looks like we all have the capacity to feel shame, but some of us do something really quickly to counteract that and keep moving. Let me read some items from rejection sensitivity scales. So people research this. Uh, someone must have said, hey, I wonder if there's brain correlates to rejection sensitivity. And one guy says, I'll go get the brain machine. And somebody else says, dude, what's rejection sensitivity? Like, I know what it is, but how do we measure it? So somebody goes, okay. They come up with the children's version. So imagine that you're a child answering this question. Here we go. Imagine you had a really bad fight the other day with a friend. Now you've got a serious problem and you wish you had a friend to talk to. So you decide to wait for your friend after class and talk with them. You wonder if your friend will want to talk to you. So the first question on the scale, how nervous would you feel right then about whether or not your friend would want to talk to you? And how mad would you feel right then about whether or not your friend would want to talk to you? And then finally, do you predict that they will want to talk to you. Me as a kid, had a big fight with my friend. I would assume that that person does not want to be my friend anymore. Yes. And that would make it impossible for me to even have that conversation because why would they want to talk to me if they're not my friend anymore because I pissed them off. So you might not even go and wait outside of class for your friend. Right. That would have been a hard question for me to answer as a kid because when I was a kid, I didn't have an argument with a friend and then think that it was going to stay a friendship. I was like, no, I did it wrong. And now I'm not their friend anymore because they don't like me. And that's painful. I mean, that's yeah. a little tiny brick, but an important brick in your wall of awful. I've gotten over that part, but yeah. Now imagine that you're back in class. Your teacher asks for a volunteer to help plan a party for your class. 
Lots of kids raise their hands. So you raise your hand and you wonder if the teacher will choose you. How nervous would you feel right then about whether or not the teacher will choose you? How mad would you feel about whether the teacher will choose you? And then do you think the teacher will choose you? So the questionnaire is trying to get at anxiety, anger, and also your prediction that this good social thing will happen for me. Me as a kid, I would have uh, assumed that I was going to get chosen because I had already done all of the things necessary to be approved of by my teacher. Wow. Because I would have. Laid the groundwork. Yeah. And uh, if I didn't get chosen, I would have been like, well, that's just because she had to pick Sally this time. Or like that I could absorb. Okay. Because I was such a pleaser. Yeah. I knew that if my teacher didn't pick me, it wasn't because I did something wrong. It was because she just picked somebody else. Unless for some reason, homework played a role in who was getting picked. And then I would assume that I was not going to get picked because I never did my homework. Some items from uh, an adult rejection sensitivity scale. So we're trying to measure this thing that we're calling rejection sensitivity. And these questionnaires are not specific to ADHD, by the way. They're not specific to any condition. It's just this thing we're calling rejection sensitivity. Let's see, item number one, you ask somebody in class, so let's, let's say this is college. You ask somebody in class if you can borrow their notes. How anxious would you be about whether or not they would loan you the notes and then how likely is it that they would loan you the notes? Number four, you ask someone you don't know well for a date. How anxious would you be that they might not say yes and then do you predict that they would say yes? Similar questions, you ask someone in your class for coffee you call a boyfriend, girlfriend after an argument and you tell them you want to see them again. How likely is it? How anxious are you? So I think you get a sense of what researchers mean when they use this term rejection sensitivity. That's sending me to an interesting area, right? Which is um, one of the things I like to say about ADHD is that social skills potentially are a side effect of ADHD. There's a reason I can host a podcast and get people on it and, and, that kind of social skill of connecting with people and, and being charming and all those sorts of things. I completely think that is a side effect of ADHD for me. I had to learn how to screw up and then talk my way out of it. So I got good at talking to people. Yeah. That's the only reason I got out of middle school. And as a result, as a 43 year old man, now I'm like, oh, if I want to borrow someone's notes, like I can be charming enough to convince that person to let me borrow their notes. Asking someone out on a date, I'm married, so there's that part. But um, <laughs> that would be harder for me because that's a greater risk of rejection. Like that rejection would hurt more because that's rejecting me as a person. Rejecting the notes could be like, you just are selfish and don't want to share your notes or whatever. So the, sort of the weight of those two rejections is different. But in terms of the thought that comes to my head, some of it is, is like a skill set to get social acceptance. Yeah. And I've been working on that since I was in fourth grade as evidenced by all the stuff I talked about earlier. You worked harder on that social skill than maybe your peers needed to in order to compensate for something else. Right. Compensate for the fact that like I didn't do my science lab report or whatever. And I had to talk to my teacher and get a, a one day extension and then scramble and do it. Yes. That kind of stuff meant that I had to learn how to be more socially skilled potentially than my peers. So this is reminding me of a clinical story. <clears throat> this is someone I saw in my office for an ADHD evaluation and then some brief follow-up. He, he had married young 
and was busy working and uh, bought a house and recently had had a little baby. He said historically what he would do is scan the environment, look at his phone, and if nobody is mad at him and nobody is texting him saying, where are you, then everything's cool. But he's constantly scanning the environment because have I dropped a ball? Okay, if nobody's mad at me, I must, okay, we're good. And then he started a stimulant medication and he told me a story that he decided to spend Thanksgiving with his wife and little baby and his buddies who were young like him said, come on, we're going out. You know, we're, we're back home for Thanksgiving. We're going to party. You're a loser. Come on. He said uh, he was better able to say, no, this is what I've decided I'm going to do. I, I hear that people are disagreeing and disapproving. He said for the first time in his life, he felt like, I know I'm doing the right thing because I thought about it in advance and I chose it. And I'm like, you know, stimulant medication isn't supposed to do that. It doesn't say that on the bottle. But this is sort of one of the lovely benefits for him of getting his ADHD treated is he didn't need to scan the environment as much because he'd already gotten up. He slept well. He ate well. He exercised. He looked at his calendar and said, here's where I need to be today. So if somebody's mad at me, maybe that's on them. It's not that I dropped some ball. I just, I love that. Yeah, that's, I have enough dopamine in my brain to withstand the rejection of my peers, my friends, my whatever. Yeah, right. Okay, so let's agree that rejection sensitivity is a thing. Some people have more, some have less. What about rejection-sensitive dysphoria? Is that a thing? This is a term that's been around for decades. Only recently has it been applied to ADHD. We'll get to that. But it's been around for decades to describe a key component of some mood disorders, also uh, some personality disorders like borderline personality. Uh, There was a book, what, 30 years ago called I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, something like that. This sort of really needing approval from others, feeling terrified when you don't get it, and then inadvertently doing things that push people away, rapid sort of mood dysregulation, you might say overreacting to perceived rejection from doctors, therapists, and so forth. Someone on Reddit, and the, the, the subreddit for adults with ADHD said, I've started to accept that I'm going through an incredibly immense amount of pain whenever somebody rejects me. I know that pain is worse than somebody else. It's crushing, debilitating. So now I talk to myself kindly, And I say, look, you're going to be okay. This feels horrible, but it won't last forever. This pain doesn't mean it's a life-threatening situation. And then somebody else on Reddit says, as far back as I could remember, I was incapable of asking people out for a date, terrified of rejection. I also feel mortified if I think somebody's mad at me, especially if I don't know them super well. There are people who I can't stand, but if I thought they were talking about me behind my back, I'd be really upset and embarrassed. Vyvanse, a stimulant medication, kind of helps, a little. Helps with my confidence. It makes me say, okay, maybe some people just don't like me. and That's okay. Somebody else says, applying for jobs? Forget it. I'll stay in the same job forever because applying and facing rejection is so traumatic. I live in a place I hate. The only reason I was able to move out of this place is because I sent out applications because a coach was supporting me. By the way, yes on the coach. If it takes medication, if it takes coaching to help you get to the next step in your job or your romantic life, whatever. This other guy says, getting diagnosed with ADD at age 21 made me feel like I've been playing video game on hard mode without knowing it. I say that all the time, that ADHD is life on hard mode. That's one of my ways to describe the disorder. And some of this is cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Like that's hiding in what some of these people are doing because they're talking back to themselves. They're correcting their thoughts. They're challenging their thoughts. And, and that's some of the stuff I've been ex- explaining about my approach too. Is that like, no, they're not. That person doesn't hate me. Mm. We just disagreed on this thing. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. 
So how is, how is this thing related to ADHD? How is rejection sensitivity or rejection sensitive dysphoria related to ADHD? You know, there's this thing that you'll see, uh, you have to practice a new skill for 21 days in order to get mastery. I challenge you to find the original citation for that. I've never seen the actual study. It's just quoted and, okay, likewise, you're gonna see this thing. If you Google ADHD rejection sensitivity, you're gonna see a quote like, up to 99% of teens and adults with ADHD are more sensitive than usual to rejection. I have never, please share it with me if you find it, I've never seen the citation for that. What we do know is that ADHD is associated with intense experience of emotions. When people with ADHD get excited, they're super excited. When they feel bad, they feel super bad. So we know that. We also know that some people with ADHD tend to hyperfocus. So put those things together. Tendency to hyperfocus and a tendency to have intense experience of emotions. Um, I think you see why we kind of are laying the groundwork for possible relationship between the two. Mm -hmm. There was a study in 2007 that actually did not find a difference between neurotypicals and folks with ADHD in terms of rejection sensitivity. The study did find poor self-esteem in the ADHD sample. They also found that in the ADHD sample, people who had lower rejection sensitivity had poorer social competence. And people with higher rejection sensitivity had greater social competence, which sounds like the story you just told me. You said your sensitivity to potential rejection made you really ramp up the social skills. And the other side of that is part of social competence is social awareness too, right? So am I hyper aware of social cues and interpreting them more strongly as a result or just noticing more rejection because people are rejecting you all over the place all the time right. for lots of different reasons, yes. most of which have nothing to do with you. And if I, as a kid, am just noticing this stuff, like that slight shift of the shoulder to turn a more of your back to someone, not because they don't like you, but because they're 12 and that's their friend group and they don't want anyone else in their friend group because they're 12. And I'm maybe interpreting that as, oh, that person doesn't like me or, oh, that group of kids doesn't ever want to talk to me again or be my friend and I'll never be cool and those sorts of things. There was a 2014 study that actually did find higher rejection sensitivity was associated with greater ADHD-related impairment. There's also this concept of uh, victim justice. So awareness of, of justice, justice awareness. It's something that occurs in kids. It's when kids start saying, that's not fair. He got more than me. What they found in this 2015 study is that folks with ADHD have higher justice sensitivity, more perceptions of injustice, and they're more anxious and angry about rejection sensitivity. And then uh, a 2019 study, Babinski and colleagues found that young people with higher ADHD symptoms had enhanced sensitivity to peer rejection at the self-report level, as well as looking at event-related event potentials. So neurophysiological evidence and self-report rejection sensitivity seem to be correlated with ADHD symptoms. So I would say we got a mixed picture. I'd like to see more research, uh, but you could probably point to a study in the literature that confirms your bias on this coming into it. Yeah, that's cool. And it also sends me in lots of interesting directions, right? Like it gets me wondering about, are we controlling for things like socioeconomic status? Are we controlling for race? Are we controlling for cultural norms and expectations? Because all of that is going to play into feelings around justice. It's going to play into feelings around peer rejection and, and that stuff. And that may or may not have an impact on the results of the studies. And, and you know, man, in 2020, 
to have a capacity to recognize and get mad about injustice is not a bad thing. Right. Unless you get overwhelmed by it. Yes. Right. You got to know how to do self-care in addition to caring for your, your people. Well, let's talk about some things that people who experience rejection sensitivity can do to help themselves. You have mentioned a couple of times that growth mindset has helped you. Can you tell me how that works? I used to have a very fixed mindset. I used to be like, if I mess up at work, I deserve to get fired because I'm not good enough to have this job. I'm not going to be allowed to improve, right? Right. And it was this interesting fixed mindset where it wasn't necessarily aimed at me. It was more aimed externally where I'm assuming that the person who is my boss has a fixed mindset about me, right? Yes. And that brings us back to the justice part because there's a little part of me that's like, and that's not even fair because I could figure out how to do this, but that person isn't going to give me the chance and those sorts of things. And some of that is because I legitimately had bosses who were absolutely fixed mindset around the new person, any new person. If you weren't perfect from the jump, off you went. But it made it harder for me to trust later bosses who totally had open and growth mindsets around, you're supposed to screw it up, you're new, you'll get better. And I had trouble navigating these new, more growth-focused mindsets. And yeah, a fixed mindset is basically, it is what it is, right? Like, I'm good at math, I'm bad at math. I am uh, a kind person, I'm a mean person. And a growth mindset is looking at things as flexible and looking at things as it can grow, it can change. So I'm not good at math right now, but I can learn how to become good at math. Or right now I'm a jerk, but it's that's going to change because... I'm mostly being a jerk because I didn't get enough sleep or I'm being I'm cranky because I didn't have breakfast yet or something like that. Or I am a jerk and I don't want to be a jerk, so I'm going to learn social skills and become less of a jerk. That's kind of the growth mindset, fixed mindset dynamic. And the growth mindset allows me, at least, to move beyond some of the rejection sensitivity stuff because I'm able to say, even if I'm rejected for this, it doesn't have to reflect on me forever. It might legitimately reflect on my failures and and lack of something in this moment, but I don't have to stay in this moment. I can fix those areas of weakness. So based on this, I think something that your listeners can do right away, go read about growth mindset, especially uh, you might Google growth mindset neuroplasticity. You know, Read about these two things together, because if you believe that you're born with a certain amount of verbal intelligence or capacity for doing a three-point shot or Kardashian knowledge or social skills. That's not the way the brain works. Your brain is constantly changing. If you learn to read Braille, you change your brain. If you start an antidepressant, you change your brain. Trauma changes your brain. Learning to use um, a BlackBerry phone and, and you know keyboarding with your thumbs changed your brain in ways that you no longer need. You're now using a flat keyboard and your brain is changed in ways that you won't need in the future because we'll be engaging with Instagram with our cornea. You're constantly changing your brain. The question is simply, do I want to be in control of those changes? So when somebody says, I can't ask people out for date, what, they, what they're saying is, I'm the kind of person who's born without the skill to ask people out for dates. That's not the way the brain works. That's what you're saying. One thing people can do if they experience rejection sensitivity, read about growth mindset and convince themselves the brain changes with practice. Something else I think we can do is learn about cognitive distortions. You referenced CBT earlier, cognitive behavioral therapy, which says the things we think in our heads affect how we feel. If two 55-year-old men across town from each other get a pain in their chest and one of them says, 
my dad and my uncles died of a heart attack. Now I'm dying. He's going to feel a certain way. If the other guy says, oh, I should never eat food so late. This is bad indigestion. He's going to feel a different way. If someone says, no, I don't want to go on a date with you. And you think, oh, that must mean that they're married. So they don't want to go out with awesome me. You'll feel one way. But if you say, oh, they don't want to go out with me because I'm worthless and I'll always be worthless, you'll feel a different way. So read about cognitive distortions and then begin to notice them as they play out in little ways. So let's say you go to the store, you're checking out and the person doesn't make eye contact. And so you feel a little bit bad and you're like, okay, this is a little bit bad. I can handle this. What was I thinking in my head that made me feel a little bit bad? And hopefully you're able to say to yourself, really, this person sees a thousand people a day. It's not really about me. This is something I'm doing in my head. So I think just becoming aware, read about the growth mindset, read about distortions. I also think we can learn from DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. This is a very specific type of CBT that um, is really specifically for folks who have difficulty with emotional regulation. But I think there's a lot that people with rejection sensitivity can, can learn from it. For example, grounding techniques. One of my favorite is called 54321. So when you've experienced rejection, either in real life or in your head, and you're about to go into a K-hole, just do 54321. Look around you and ground yourself in current reality. Notice five things that you can see. I've got my blue Nalgene. I've got my silver pin. I've got this weird light. And then four things that you can hear. And then three things that you can smell. Two things that you can taste. Well, I think I skipped one of the senses, but you get the idea. Ground yourself in your current sensory reality. You've twice now said K-hole. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so K-hole is just when you go into a terrible, it's sort of imagine like in the movie Psycho when the water and the blood are going down or imagine sort of a scene in outer space where everything's getting sucked up into a black hole. Does the K stand for anything? It's actually a drug reference. I think it stands for ketamine. <laughs> it's sort of what happens after the good part of the drug. But uh, you know, it, can it happens to all of us. It's, it's chemistry, yes, but it's the chemistry that comes from engaging with our social environment, right? K-hole that we do to ourselves. By the way, um, can we talk about the opposite of rejection sensitivity? Yeah, let's do it. So if it's true that folks with ADHD uh, experience sort of um, strong emotions in both directions, then it probably would make sense that folks who, who struggle with uh, emotional regulation wouldn't just get stuck on rejection, which is one end of the pole. In fact, someone on Reddit says, I think I'm a psychiatrist. I think I made up something. He says, wouldn't it be true that there would be an opposite of rejection sensitivity? And could we call that acceptance sensitive euphoria? Now he cautions, a person in a completely blissful state because other people approve of them might be just as dysfunctional as someone who's in a K-hole of shame, but at least they're blissful. What's interesting is Dr. Hallowell and Rady in a webinar that they did for Attitude uh, they, they actually identify this opposite. They don't call it acceptance-sensitive euphoria. They call it recognition-responsive euphoria. My jaw is hurting with all these words that we made up, but you get the idea. They suggest identify your, your social environment as either leeches or lilies. You're the beautiful summer pond, and you have leeches. These are people or, or tasks that drain you. And then lilies. These are relationships or tasks which take the time, but they're worth it, and they're gorgeous. So cultivate the lilies. Really notice who in your life is rejecting you and making you feel bad. And noticing who in your life is telling you you're awesome and that makes you feel good. 
recognize that you tend to respond to social punishment and praise and see if you can populate your environment as much as possible with the people that are giving you the good stuff. And also build some resilience around the good stuff. One of the things that I've taken to doing over the past few years is I own the stuff that I'm amazing at. Like I'm a really good podcast host. I'm a phenomenal public speaker and I'm an amazing ADHD coach. Yeah. And I'm just going to own that. I'm not going to pretend false humility around, well, I guess I'm good. Like sometimes the humility comes out because I am a fairly humble person, but there's other times when that humility isn't there. And I'm like, like I just finished a workshop in front of a hundred people and I'm riding high on that euphoria. Yes. I'm like, no, I pretty much kick ass at this. Like there's not a lot of people who are better than me at this. And I've got people in my life who, if I'm having that, like, I'm amazing moment, are more than willing to be like, pump the brakes, slick. Like, you're not that cool. And I, that used to hit me really hard, right? Because now I feel like I'm having these really good emotions, but I'm not allowed to feel these really good emotions. And it would crush me when I got that pump the brakes message. And then one day I was like, wait a minute. I am more than willing to own all of the ways that I screw up and feel terrible about them. And I don't often get people telling me to pump the brakes on that. People are usually willing to let me wallow in my own self-misery. And if I'm going to own my errors that tightly, I'm going to own my successes that tightly too. Wow. So I'm going to flip that script around and it's okay for me to be like, no, I'm one of the best in the world at what I do because I take my job seriously. That's awesome. And I also completely suck at other stuff. And that means... It's okay for me to be amazing at the things I'm amazing at because I'm also, it's okay for me to suck at the stuff that I suck at. Taking that perspective has provided me with some resilience around that sort of like pump the brakes comments that I, that come up every now and then. And, and yeah, okay. I do need to pump the brakes sometimes. I'm not going to say that that's not true. There's times when I'm a little too happy about how well I did. But now when those comments hit, I take it as a social cue, which is really probably what it's intended as, not as a personal slight. Not as like, you're too full of yourself and you're an egomaniac, which is how I used to feel about it. You call this building resilience around... What you're good at. Like being able to own... What you're good at. Uh -huh. That euphoria. Being able to own the stuff you're amazing at because folks with ADHD can't always do that. And if we build some resilience around it, we get to recognize what we're good at sooner and then we can start capitalizing on it. Well, thank you for describing that. But also, I love the fact that you're modeling it. Let's sort of wrap up what we've done to this point. Yeah. Uh, is rejection sensitivity a thing? Yes, it's a thing. We're a social animal. We're wired to feel pain when people reject us and we're, we're wired to take the light when people approve. All right. It occurs on a spectrum. Some people have more of it. Some have less. Is rejection sensitive dysphoria a thing? Yes. Uh, it's been discussed in uh, psychiatric circles as a component of a number of conditions, personality disorders, mood disorders. It's not a DSM diagnosis. We don't have diagnostic criteria, you know, three of these, two of these for two weeks or more. But yeah, it seems to be uh, rejection sensitive dysphoria appears to be a, a thing that, that bothers people, um, maybe, maybe not related to certain diagnoses. We said, how is rejection sensitive dysphoria related to ADHD? Uh, there's a mixed bag of research out there. Some of it seems to confirm what people have said about themselves. Some of it seems to at least make us scratch our head and ask questions. But at the end of the day, if you experience rejection sensitivity and it's bothering you, therefore you're dysphoric, what are some things you can do to help? You suggested get crystal clear on the growth mindset. You can get better at things that you practice, piano, social skills, 
judo. Um, I suggested look into CBT, learn about the cognitions in our head that are distorted, make us feel bad. I also suggested we might take some tips from DBT, like grounding practices. Also some ideas, when you begin to feel rejection sensitivity and you're tempted to spend 30 minutes chewing on it, don't push it out of your head, but acknowledge that you're gonna spend some time on it later. Right now I've gotta live my life, but I'm gonna come back later, I'm gonna journal about this. So postpone the feeling until later. It may be less strong later, but definitely come back later and honor the commitment that you're gonna spend some time journaling about it. There was a Redditor who said, uh, I've come up with a weird executive function trick. I call it the mom friend override. So when I can't do a thing because of my own mental health challenges, I imagine that there's a friend who can't do a thing because of their mental health challenges. And I'm actually able to rally myself to help them. So let's say I'm so anxious that I can't make phone calls. And my friend is like, I'm so anxious that I can't make phone calls. And there's this really important phone call. I might actually rally for him or her and make that phone call in order to help my friend. So the mom friend override is, I imagine that my mom comes to me and says, look, I see you here laying down in a K-hole of rejection sensitivity. You've got a friend who's got it worse. Can you help them? And so I imagine that I am helping my, a friend as a way of helping myself. One other thing that I want to throw out there as a strategy, something to poke around with a little bit more, is we mentioned that rejection sensitivity has a relationship to trauma, both with regard to potentially trauma resulting in rejection sensitivity, and also through the wall of awful model, that rejection sensitivity, I'm going to be more tuned to rejection, so I'm going to notice those rejections more, so that trauma by a million little cuts thing is going to happen sooner we're getting it from both ends, right? Trauma is playing a role in terms of it can sort of cause rejection sensitivity. And also it can be the result of rejection sensitivity. Mm. And so another way to address this is to become more trauma informed and learn trauma informed practices. If you are someone who works with students or clients who are affected by rejection sensitivity, because those trauma informed practices are going to help you navigate the challenges of the individuals you're working with more effectively. Good stuff. And so just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, I would, I would say if you are um, a clinician or someone who is in a position to think about trauma-informed work with ADHD clients, and you're trying to form an opinion about is rejection-sensitive dysphoria a thing, I would just remember a quote from Maya Angelou who says, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. And so when somebody says, you know, I have keen negative experiences around rejection, I'm super sensitive to rejection, and, and I think it's related to my ADHD, I see overlap. I think we start there. We may or may not eventually get to the diagnostic specifics, but I say when somebody tells you who they are, believe them and start there. And as an ADHD coach, teacher, parent, or clinician, incorporate this work into the good ADHD work that you're doing already. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection.
10% better is all you need.